This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. JP and I are super excited today to welcome back a very, very uh, lovable guest who we've had on multiple times, Dr. Dan Barrow. Dan has been uh, chairman at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, my hometown, for quite some time now. Dan has been a wonderful friend of the podcast, always very honest uh, with compelling narratives in terms of what he has to say about our field. Dan, welcome back. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, so we knew we could go to you for uh, sort of the brass tacks on a lot of these discussions JP and I have been having with other folks in the country about all these new changes we we are coming hopefully out of COVID, although there's the BA2 strain, but the, the whole reemergence after a couple years of, um, of changes in how residents go through a process of being selected from medical school. And so this is a very interesting time, lots of changes. Um, maybe I can get a take from you first on what's happening at Emory. Well, uh, the main thing I guess that's happening here, I, I don't know what is... Uh, what the number of programs are that have decided to go back to in-person interviews, but we have. Um, we we uh, cast a, a query out to the faculty and the residents, and there was overwhelming support for uh, going back to in-person interviews. So that's probably the biggest change. Um, obviously, the other change that's going to affect all the programs to, to some degree is the uh, step one scores uh, not being scored anymore and being pass fail, which will eliminate one of the very few objective uh, criteria uh, that's been available recently uh, to uh, try to uh, categorize residents into different uh, uh, zones. So th those are the main things I think that are happening. Well, Dr. Barrow, I, I think you couldn't uh, set me up better to ask the million dollar question for today's conversation. You've obviously been in the game for a long time and been in the leadership there at Emory in the process of selecting the next generation of residents year in and year out. So I wonder from your perspective, as you've seen different shifts in our field and our interview process over the years, what, what do you anticipate happening with, I guess we can start with the loss of the um, stratification of those step one scores. What, maybe what have you already thought about looking at some other metric to stratify people? What what changes do you anticipate affecting your program with that? Yeah, you know, I I mean, I, I hate to sound the way that I know I'm going to sound, but I, I, I worry that we're kind of shifting rather dramatically over, not just since COVID, but shifting dramatically over a matter of years uh, from a focus on truly trying to identify the best and brightest students to being much more concerned about their mental health and burnout and things that are extremely important. Uh, don't get me wrong. But I mean, if preparation for step one of the USMLE creates that much burnout, you know, maybe that should be a pre-selection for choosing a different specialty than neurosurgery. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I worry that, that they've taken away, and, and let me, let me just qualify what I'm saying. I, saying, I don't, I don't think that the step one scores are a very good uh, uh, predictor of who's going to be a good neurosurgeon or a good doctor or anything of that nature. But I think it is somewhat of a predictor of somebody's uh, intelligence, of somebody's um, willingness to put in the time to study for an exam. 
which can be surrogates for for uh, uh, somebody who's going to be a good uh, good performer. I mean, the problem, as you well know, is that there's been this meteoric rise in the number of applications submitted by individual medical students that want to be neurosurgery residents, and it's you know created a you know, residency arms race in our in our specialty, and that's good, uh, good for neurosurgery that we have these these bright people um, that that uh, you know want to want to come into our specialty, and and although statistically they probably only need to apply to a limited number of programs, you know this uh, this strategy of applying widely is not only smart but it's become necessary because of that competitiveness. So what programs have been trying to do for years is to identify, you know, the holy grail of, of finding the right applicant. And we've had all kinds of surrogates, you know, participation in team sports, the USMLE scores, letters of recommendation, whether you play a musical instrument, uh, AOA, away rotations, you know, and the holy grail probably doesn't exist because the human condition is, is complicated. But the, the one, you know, we used to have grades. We used to have letters of recommendation that actually meant something. And we used to have the step one score. And although none of them are perfect, we don't have any of them really anymore. Yeah, you know, Dr. Barrow, I, I agree with you. I know it's controversial. We've entered a new era, as you said. And I think that COVID was, I don't want to say it was the excuse, but it's certainly been a wedge um, to do away with the the selection process that I certainly remember. And, you know, it, it is interesting because we all agree that the USMLE step one is, is, um, is a surrogate of only a limited uh, part of the matrix of selection, right? But it was at least objective and applied uniformly across uh, medical schools and applicants, right? So that was the one positive feature it had. Now, yep. You know, in Miami, we struggle, and I, and I, you know, Rick Komatar has been on our podcast. He was very vocal last year, and and uh, trying to do this thing about figuring out, well, what are we going to do in our program? To, I mean, let's be honest, it's not just about selecting applicants; it's about not having people who wouldn't wouldn't fit this culture well make a big mistake in their career, right? I mean, and right. it, it's also it's not just like a punitive selection process, although I'm sure a lot of people see it that way. But there's also this desire to have people be in the right place. And, and um, you know, I know Emory is an amazing program. You, you congratulations on your increased compliment. Um, that only comes with uh, the, the, you know, the gold star approval of, of our residency, uh, you know, infrastructure, if you will, that you guys can train so many qualified young men and women. What, what are you guys going to do without the USMLE? It's like, what? how do you measure this? Because the applicants all want to know, like, how am I going to, going to make myself look better? And we've, and just as an aside, we've talked about this. We've said, well, look, you can't change the medical school you went to, right? So there's definitely going to be a lot more uh, privilege if you went to a very prestigious medical school now. Um, is it publications? Is that the only thing left that you can, that's mutable after you get into medical school? Well, I, first of all, let me just say that, that what we do is, is not something I can answer because we have a very democratic system here. Uh, my vote as to how we uh, rank our residents uh, has the same value as uh, any of our residents that are involved in the, in the, uh, in the interview process. So, so it, that is to be determined. Um, and 
you know, there is a lot of diversity among our faculty in what we value. Um, there are a number of things we all value, but for instance, you know, people that have come from an incredibly difficult background that have overcome some obstacle that, that I perceive as an obstacle I couldn't have overcome, that, that means a lot to me, uh, maybe more than, than uh, uh, you know, a, a USMLE score or a, a, a publication of a, of a case report. So I, I, I think that's what, um, you know, makes the, the selection process uh, interesting is that is that we do uh, take into consideration what everybody what everybody in the in the department, including our residents, uh, think is important. But you know, in a recent survey of, of neurosurgery residency program directors, uh, the most important criteria used to select uh, applicants were in order of importance was performance during the interviews. That was number one. Number two was the USMLE Step One scores, and third were letters of recommendation. So. Um, that is probably one of the reasons that we have decided to go back to personal interviews. I, I mean, I think we did a good job with the, with the virtual interviews. I think they worked okay. Uh, there's no question it was uh, a great cost savings for the applicants, and I, I take that very seriously. But, but I think more now than ever, being able to, to, to sit in a room and talk to the applicant and 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 shake her hand and 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 you know give them the opportunity to look you in the eye and tell you why they want to be a neurosurgeon or, or come to your program. I think I think we owe them that that opportunity since we've eliminated so many other of the more objective ways of evaluating people. And then of course there's this this other thing that's that's come up is this preference signaling which uh, I don't know if that's something that you wanted to talk about, but um, that was completely a new concept to me. Um, And uh, it's an interesting one. And uh, we can certainly talk about it if you want. Yeah, Dr. Barrow, I I think kind of as as you very succinctly reviewed this milieu of tools available to the selector, not only for the final rank list, but even selecting who will be offered an interview. And in particular, as you say at Emory, you're transitioning back to in-person interviews, which limits the amount of spots for people to physically come there to Atlanta versus logging into a Zoom call. I think the other major change this year, which is radically new and um, truly a, a first-time step for the interview process in our field, is this system of preference signaling. So I think we and our listeners would love to hear in general your your thoughts and impressions of the system and if there has been any preliminary discussion there at emory for one program about how that might play a role and how that might be weighted in whom you select to invite for an interview there this season yeah no i i mean it's it's obviously new and i i think for the benefit of of many of our listeners because many of them may be just like me when i first heard the term i had absolutely no idea what they were referring to and you know, preference signaling is not sharing your preferred pronouns as has become fashionable in our world today. Um, uh, it, it actually is a is a is a process that was originally tested and used by the American Economics Association. And uh, you know, there's nobody in the world that that likes uh, wasting time and money less than economists. And so, as I understand, since about 2006, the American Economic Association has used this preference signaling to facilitate the you know thousand plus jobs that are available to economics graduate students. 
And the goal is to try to put interested applicants with interested programs. So, you know, you've got a thousand plus app uh, jobs available and you've got all these economics graduate students. How do you figure out where they should interview? And uh, obviously this process uh, was uh, thought to perhaps be useful in, um, uh, in the, the, the match program. And uh, ENT has had some experience with it. Um, my daughter's an otolaryngologist. And so I've talked to her about it and, uh, She's, she says that you know, they, they feel like it's, it's been uh, somewhat useful. The, the problem is, again, it's, it's, it's just subjective criteria. I mean, it is, it is important, I, I think, for programs to know that somebody uh, is, is, is interested. You know, the, the, the idea being that, that the signals are, are, you know, each applicant gets a certain number of them. So, you know, this is a, is a, 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 a finite resource. Uh, and if uh, I think ENT uses four. So, you know, if you if you have four of these preference signals and you give them to you know, four programs and you at least know that they're, they have a high level of interest in your program. So, yeah, I think it's a I think it's a reasonable idea. It's nice to know that somebody isn't just, um, you know, you're not the, 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 the hundredth uh, program that they've sent a, an application to. But it doesn't really replace any of the of the objective criteria like grades, like meaningful um, uh, uh, letters of, of recommendation, uh, like uh, a board score that that you can you know more objectively hang your hat on. Can I ask you, Dr. Barrow, given these changes? So it's it's very interesting to me. It seems like. Um, the changes are being handed down to us, and as individual programs, um, we can choose to respond in various ways. And in thinking through this, it, do you see any change in the way that the structure of the review and application process has to be responded to? And I, I don't necessarily want you to speak specifically from Emory's perspective, not to single you guys out, but here in Miami, we've struggled with this. We're like, well, okay, so these are the new changes being handed to us. How are we then going to respond? How are we going to be able to better filter the folks so that we can make the right choices and make the proper rank lists um, for these applicants. Um, yeah, I think it, that's. You know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say that is a great question. I think that's a, a great question, and I have thought about that. And I think that that it's very important that that we understand that the idea is that signals are just a better marker of sincerity. That's all it is. It's a marker of sincerity of the particular applicant. This is not, in my opinion, a substitute for application review, but just simply another tool we put into the calculus. So I think it would be a huge mistake for programs to look at applicants, you know, the pile of applications we all get, the hundreds of applications we get for, you know, two, three, four positions, whatever our program is, and say, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bother to review these applications because they didn't send me a, a preference signal. That would be a huge mistake. Um, you know, again, you have to understand what this is. These, this is a, they have a very limited number. I think um, there's going to be a lot of gamesmanship that people are going to have to figure out like they do with the match. You know, if I send my preference signal to this place, you know, and I don't send it to that place, what's going to happen? Should I send one to my home program? Almost everybody says absolutely not. You don't do that. So um, I, I just think it's a it's another tool 
um, but in no way um, should it be, be a substitute for determining um, how you go through the application um, uh, reviews. And, and, and in fact, you know, I think now more than ever, we need to spend more time going over the applications to try to, you know, glean from it um, characteristics of the, of the individuals that really make them distinguish them from from their their peers and and outline something that, that it allows us to say this is a person who's going to really flourish at our program. Um, and you know, programs differ. Um, you know, when I mean a program like ours, I mean we have we have multiple hospitals. We have more operations done every day than our residents can possibly staff. So they have choices they can make. Um, they, they, they can choose among a wide variety of research opportunities. Our, 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 uh, our elective uh, options are about as liberal as you can possibly imagine. We've had residents do some of the most you know, unusual things you can imagine during their elective time, because that's why it's called elective. We're not going to we're not going to you know, schedule something uh, for them. But that attracts a certain kind of person that will flourish. Uh, I mean, as I often tell resident applicants when they ask me, you know, what kind of resident flourishes at Emory? And I tell them, you know, if your mother was making play dates for you when you were in high school, this is probably not the, not the right program for you. <laughs> I can make some recommendations of places that you might fit in, but you're, you're not going to do very well here because you need to be excited about having the opportunity to have more uh, more opportunities than there is uh, time to do it. And so those are the kinds of things that you do glean, I think, from personal interviews and sometimes from personal statements and sometimes from letters of recommendation. But I think you got to, I think if, if anything, we have to dig harder into evaluating the applications. Although admittedly, much of what is in there is subjective and there is room for embellishment and there is room for exaggeration, as we all know. You know, Dr. Barra, as we talk about all of these new or changing tools for the interview process in our field, it occurs to me that, that these are all really pre-interview and these are all really tools or steps that um, we on the institutional side, every at all levels from you know myself as a mid-level resident up to you as a chairman, it, this is all about selecting the people to whom we offer an invitation. But none of this is really spoken toward the back end of the procedure where after you interview everyone, you get to meet them again this year at Emory or in the past few years, just speak with them. How you really select someone at the back end of the process once you've picked who you're going to talk to. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, if at all, any of these changes, the, the loss of step scores, the new preference signaling, do you think that will factor into your post-interview ranking of people at all? And if the answer is simply no, because that didn't weigh into it at that step, that's fine. But then I wonder if you could also wax poetic for a moment about what your selection or your ranking process is like at the end of the game and if that's changed at all across the years. I, I think you're a great person to kind of pick your mind about what that process is like. Yeah, well, I can I can speak to <laughs> uh, it's a it's a it's a complex question, but I can speak to what I what I think is going to happen generally, and then and what might happen at our program. I, I think one of the things that's going to happen, uh, I wouldn't say that it's something that we're going to do. We may or may not, but I think one of the things is that the importance of step two is going to increase dramatically. I mean, nobody really ever 
paid any attention to step two, either the clinical knowledge or the clinical skills. The latter sometimes, you know, people didn't take until they're actually in their residency. But there is a there is a a a risk, I think, um, of the step two clinical knowledge exam becoming uh, of greater importance now. I think uh, the other thing that's going to become of greater importance and has always been one of the most important to me is the personal phone call that I make with the program director or my friend at Columbia University or University of Miami or wherever it might be to ask about a medical student that they know better than I do. Because quite honestly, you really you really have to almost read between the lines on on written uh recommendations. Uh, I, I mean, the, you know, the Senior Society created uh, this standardized evaluation a couple of years ago, and I don't remember the exact numbers. I, I hate to, 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 don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that, that programs, you know, rep have reported that the majority of the completed responses rated candidates, the majority of them in the top 10% of all candidates. Well, the majority of candidates can't be in the top 10%. And very importantly, for the majority of, the, of those seven questions they asked, less than 1% of the applicants were rated in the bottom 50%. So, you know, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like, you know, in Minnesota that, you know, everybody is above average. Um, uh, and and it, it, obviously it can't be that way. So, so we, we are guilty of grade inflation. Uh, just like like schools have been, and now schools have largely, many of them, eliminated grades. So I think more and more we have to identify surrogates that are that are, are reliable. And I, I think one of the most important is the personal phone call. And I tell my residents and I tell my fellows that my job is not over until we have secured you a job that will keep you professionally and personally happy. And that job, by and large, is going to be me picking up the telephone and calling somebody and saying, hey, do you need a great cerebrovascular surgeon or do you need a great spine surgeon because I've got somebody that will fit your bill? By the time you read about a job opportunity in the Journal of Neurosurgery, that job's usually filled. So I, I think we have to rely on those personal interactions. And, and another idea that I have, and you know, this may sound far-fetched, but Neurosurgery for a small specialty has always been on the forefront. I mean, we were one of the first specialties um, to, to do a lot of innovative things that others have, have copied. I mean, look at, our, look at our boot camps for our interns. I mean, that was, that was absolutely brilliant. And the, uh, you know, the senior society and, and, and the people that, that helped uh, initiate that, that, that process, I mean, deserve an enormous amount of credit. For a small specialty. You look at Katie Arico, who runs our Washington office. I mean, she is at the forefront of identifying opportunities uh, that other big specialties miss. Uh, we're much more nimble than others. One of the things I've thought about is maybe neurosurgery should develop its own exam. If, if we're not going to have a step one, you know, okay, fine. Uh, I don't know why uh, people thought it was an unfair test or it was it, it created too much stress on people. But, you know, if that's the case, so be it. Why don't we create, you know, through our senior society, why don't we create uh, uh, an examination that we give 
to people that say they would like to become a neurosurgeon. And we can put the, the content in there that we want. Um, you know, uh, Bernard Bendock and I, um, uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, uh, published a book uh, for the Senior Society uh, called Essential Neurosurgery for Medical Students. And right. many of you probably contributed to it. And it was something that we, we got the, the Congress to pay for. Uh, and we made it free to every medical student in the entire United States, in fact, in the world, any medical student anywhere. And what it contains is the knowledge that we think every medical student ought to have about neurosurgery, not just neurosurgery inclined medical students, but the resident that's going to become a radiologist. What, what does she need to know about a subdural hematoma? What does she need to know about an epidural abscess? I mean, every doctor needs to know something about every specialty. Well, we put this together for, for medical students using a resource like that. We could easily come up with an examination that tests knowledge of medical students that say, I want to be a neurosurgeon. Uh, I mean, if you really do want to be a neurosurgeon by the time you're a third year medical student, there's a certain level of knowledge that you probably ought to be able to, um, uh, to demonstrate. And maybe that would be a way to add another objective criteria. So those are things I've thought about. Um, and, and to answer your very specific question, how is Emory going to do it? Again, we, we have a large faculty, um, a very diverse faculty. We, we're all best friends. We, we love each other. Uh, we don't always, always agree on, on everything. And, and everybody brings a little different bias to the table when they uh, make uh, their their individual rank list, which we then put together, and I think I think it it ends up being a richer uh, process uh, rather than having uh, established criteria and say we're going to give more credit to you know having played in team sports than having played a musical instrument, or we're going to give more weight to uh, the step two score than than being a, a member of AOA when you know you know, large percentage of medical students don't even have an AOA chapter. So I, I think, uh, you know, there, there isn't a holy grail, unfortunately. And I think, uh, you know, we, we all want to find an easy way to make these determinations. One of the other things we just completely ignore is, is technical expertise. I mean, the surrogates we use for technical expertise is, you know, did you build toy models when you were a kid or, you know, did you play video games and whether or not that has any bearing on on whether or not you can, uh, you know, place a pedicle screw or clip an aneurysm probably is uh, uh, far fetched. Well, Dr. Barrow, you are truly a thought leader. What a fantastic idea. Um, I, I would be all for that as a neurosurgery examination based on um, knowledge and maybe skill sets, right, specific to our field. I think that is a, a fantastic way of looking at things um, because the selection process is so critical. And it, it's, it's interesting that you brought up your daughter, you said is an ENT surgeon. Is that correct? She's uh, yeah, she's on the faculty here at Emory. She uh, does um, uh, endoscopic skull base work. So she, she, she works with my partners that do uh, skull base surgery. Um, and uh, she trained uh, at Emory and, and did her fellowship here and, and stayed on the faculty. So so I have her perspective from ENT, who has used the, you know, the, the preference signaling. And, um, 
you know, I, 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 I don't have any issues with it. I think it, I think it's a, another tool that that you know we can use, but it, it really, as I said, it, it 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 shouldn't be in any way a substitute for changing the way we thoroughly review the applications. It's just it's a marker of sincerity. That's what it is. So can I ask you about that? Because it's it is uh, something a bit foreign to me. And obviously you, you get to speak to your daughter about it and she's shared her thoughts with you about it. What kind of advice do you give to folks who say, look, I want to know how to use this to best position myself to get to the place I want to be? Aside from the obvious, which is, you know, just rank the places that you want to go to, right? Uh, just just put in the signals to those places. How do you do this? Do you, do you say, well, I'll distribute this on, like I'm going to go do a, a, a sub I in this one place so I won't signal there or should I stack it in that direction? Like, I know that there's a lot of ways to look at this. I don't want to appear like people are, are, are manipulating a system, but they're really trying to get across a message, right? How yeah, do people do it in ENT? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And, 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 and I think there are, I'm not fully familiar with them, but I think the, the, the residency program had experience with this have come up with, with those guidelines as kind of, you know, FAQs for the resident applicant, uh, things like don't, you know, send a preference signal to your home program. Don't send a preference signal to a program that you have done an external rotation to. Um, uh, and so I, I'm sure it's, it's very much like the match, uh, you know, over time, uh, there was body language and things that would, you know, develop that, that resident applicants would use in some situations to try to send a signal that uh, I like you better than uh, someplace else. And, and, and programs, as we all know, have been guilty of that as well, telling resident applicants, giving them information that really isn't isn't completely kosher. So I think it's a process that's going to evolve if, if, it, if it sticks and people seem to use it. But I'm sure that, that you know, these, these these young uh, people that are applying for our programs now, who are so bright um, uh, and and certainly understand the the algorithms that are used to create these, are going to figure out uh, better than 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 people in, in my stage of my career figure out ways to uh, put themselves in the best position. But at the end of the day, I, I think it's 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 really not uh, you know much of an objective um, uh, criteria that we can use. Uh, and put a lot of weight in. I mean, I'm sure you like like all programs. We have these discussions that, you know, we, we think this person is really outstanding, but uh, there there's no way in the world they're going to leave UCSF. That's where they went to medical school. They've lived there in San Francisco their entire life. You know, we have these conversations. Well, we shouldn't. What difference does it make if we think that's the best candidate? We should rank that person high and let the cards fall as they will. Uh, so I think the same same thing is going to happen with prefer signal preferencing, even even you know on steroids. People say, "Oh, this person you know didn't send us a preference signal; uh, they must they must hate us." Well, that doesn't mean that at all, because they're you know again you got to remember there are a finite number of these, um, and if they don't give you one, doesn't mean that you're not one of their top choices. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of uh, of critical thinking um, in in how these things are filled out. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm in business school now. I was just reading about game theory last night, and it makes me think, well, wait a minute. So I would actually want to then, if I knew everybody else is not going to signal to a place he did a sub-I, I would signal and sub-I. And then I would have like 
double down on my chips in a program. I don't want right. to go too far on this tangent, but it really, I don't really think it's any better. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think it's interesting. I'm very excited to see how this plays out here in Miami, but, uh, but I like how you've given so much thought to this. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's one of the most important things we do. I mean, I've, I've, I've thought about my career so many times and I suspect if I had left my residency and fellowship training and gone directly into private practice, I, I probably would be a very happy person. But having had the opportunity to do what I've done, if I went into the private practice of neurosurgery at any other point in my career, I would be miserable. And one of the things that I would miss the very most is being surrounded by young, bright, inquisitive students. It is a, a true safeguard against senility to surround yourself with these brilliant young men and women, medical students, residents, fellows that constantly ask you questions, constantly challenge everything you, you do. Why do you do it this way? This is not the way so-and-so does it. I love that. And so, you know, right after providing the very best care we can for our patients, the, the most important thing we do is, is train the next generation of neurosurgeons. And and it all begins by picking the right people. You got to get the right people on the bus uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna reach your destination. And you know when it's all said and done, we 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 use some pretty archaic means to try to identify the best and the brightest in a field where we're we're blessed with having more applicants than there are positions. Uh, we we still make mistakes, don't we? Well, Dr. Barrow, um, as we said at the top here, always such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Um, for our listeners, if anyone's joining the show late, Dr. Barrow, I think this is your your fourth time on the show. We had you on talking about uh, the experience in Atlanta during the height of the COVID pandemic. We had you on talking about the program during our review of all programs last year and uh, during our hobby series, talking about your lifelong passion hunting. So this uh, was obviously just an ideal topic to get you to come on, share your thoughts, your opinions, and uh, somewhat unexpectedly, but enjoyably, your thoughts about where things might go in the future and different uh, changes we might see and new tools we might introduce to the field ourselves. So uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. For what it's worth for our younger listeners, we'll put a link to that book, Essential Neurosurgery for Medical Students, into the show notes for today. Dr. Barrow, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks, John. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.